There was a story I heard recently about an old church in a small village, and beside the church was an arch, and over that arch was written the words, We preach Christ crucified. And for years and years, godly men preached there. They preached Christ-centered, gospel-saturated messages that focused on God's righteousness and man's sinfulness and God's great deliverance through the person and work of His Son, Jesus at the cross. But as time went on, this church began to drift from this message. There came a handful of preachers who moved away from that solid and sound message. And though they still talked a lot about Jesus, they focused less and less on his sacrifice and more and more on his example. They even got to the point where they taught that it's following Jesus' example. That's what's important. We're saved through following his example, following in his footsteps, trying to be like him in our own strength and not trusting in his substitutionary work at Calvary. And so a generation of people emerged in this church who did not see the necessity of Christ's great sacrifice. And as this was happening, over that period of time, ivy began to creep up the side of that arch and eventually covered the word crucified. So it just said, we preach Christ. Well, after some time, people began to drift further and further away from that message. And people began to ask, why do messages only have to be confined to Christ and the scriptures? Why can't we learn about other beliefs and practices? And, and they began to bring in teachers and they began to teach about politics and world religion and social issues and philosophy. And over time, Ivy continued to creep up that arch and eventually wiped out the third word. So it simply read, we preach. Sad story, isn't it? You know, when Paul was in Corinth, that godless city filled with false beliefs and practices, corruption and immorality, Paul chose to preach Christ and him crucified. And that's what we're committed to do here at Fellowship Bible Church. Here we preach Christ and Him crucified. May God close the doors on this place for good if we ever deviate from that. Here we preach Christ and Him crucified because through that great work that He accomplished at Calvary, by trusting in that great work, trusting in Christ alone, in His person and work alone for salvation, only through that are we rescued. Only through that are we forgiven of sins. Only through that are we saved. Christ is the only hope for mankind. That is the theme of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, turn there now. Hebrews 10. We are continuing our series through Hebrews. We're back in Hebrews today. 
Our series is entitled Jesus is Greater, and that has been the main theme of this book. The writer of Hebrews writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are restless spiritually. They are drifting from the Christian faith, and so he is writing for them, calling for them to not drift, to not stray, to not look away from, don't look beyond Christ. Instead, he is calling for them to consider Jesus, look to him, trust in him, cling to him, and follow him. And the way he encourages them to do this is by going line by line through all the things they treasure as Jews. And he looks at all of those things and he doesn't belittle those things. He doesn't bash those things. In fact, he says they're good things, but he simply shows that Jesus is greater than all of those things. In that day, the Jews thought highly of the prophets. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 shows that Jesus is greater than the prophets. He is God's greatest form of revelation. They viewed angels as being God's supreme messengers. They thought highly of angels. The author of Hebrews makes it clear Jesus is greater than angels. In that day, there was no Jew past present on par with Moses. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 shows that Jesus is greater than Moses. And then at the end of Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews turns his attention toward the Jewish priests, the Levitical priesthood, and makes the point that Jesus is God's great high priest, greater than Levi, greater than Aaron, greater than all the priests from the household of Aaron. He is from a greater priestly order. He is associated with a greater covenant. He serves in a greater temple. And get this, he has accomplished a greater work. This has been the point that the writer of Hebrews has been making chapter after chapter. And we've seen this, right? Chapter after chapter. This is the heart of Hebrews. This focus on Christ being a superior priest from a greater priestly order associated with the better covenant. That is the heart of the book of Hebrews. He gives just a small portion of the book to Jesus being greater than prophets, angels, and Moses. And he really camps out on this teaching that Jesus is the supreme priest. He is superior to all the other priests. Why does he spend so much time on that? Because the Levitical priesthood and the daily works of the priest and the annual work of the high priest on the Day of Atonement was the most important positions and position and works and work in all of Judaism. These guys had access into the earthly dwelling place of God, the tabernacle and later the temple. And the high priest one time a year had access into the most holy place, the place where God and man met. You see, the Jews knew that they were sinful. They knew that there was a separation because of their sin. The old covenant had taught them that. 
They knew they were unfit to enter into God's presence. The old covenant had taught them that. They understood their need for a go-between. The old covenant had taught them that. They understood that their sins needed to be covered. The old covenant had taught them that. But what many of them failed to understand was their need for a true and better priest. The needs for their sins to be truly forgiven. The need for them to be for them all to be restored to God they they failed to understand their need for all of them to have access into the presence of holy God and the writer of Hebrews is writing to them to tell them that that has been made available that work has been accomplished through Jesus Christ has come he has accomplished this great work he has done it once and for all at Calvary and by faith alone in Christ alone you can be forgiven of sin and restored to God forever they needed to be reminded of that the author of Hebrews is saying you guys no longer need an earthly temple you no longer need earthly priests and you no longer need animal sacrifices you no longer need offerings and washings and ceremonies what Christ has accomplished is better all of those old things were shadows he says they serve one main purpose and that was to turn people their hearts and their minds their focus toward the Messiah to come all of these things are about Jesus they pointed to and they illustrated the work that Christ came to accomplish and all of those things were fulfilled in Christ the writer of Hebrews he's he's showing them that Jesus is better than all those things he is a better priest who's associated with the better covenant get this who has provided a better sacrifice and that's where the author of hebrews goes in our passage we're going to look at today and next week to the superior sacrifice of jesus in chapter 9 we looked at the work the jewish priest did over and over again and we talked about the fact that forgiveness of sin gets get this forgiveness of sin demands sacrifice the gospel tells us that Forgiveness of sin demands sacrifice. But we also talked about the insufficiency of animal sacrifice. Well, here we learn Jesus has offered up a better sacrifice. And that sacrifice was, of course, himself. And in Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, we, we learn even more about Christ's great sacrifice. We see here several key characteristics of the old animal sacrifices of the old covenant and the one-time sacrifice of Jesus that, that ushered in the new. And we're going to look at both of these. In verses 1 through 6, the author of Hebrews begins by discussing, point number one, the insufficient animal sacrifices of the old covenant. The insufficient sacrifices of the old covenant. Now, some of these we've discussed already, right? But, but like we have said time and time again throughout this study, God is repetitive in his word in important places. We, we have definitely seen that right as studying through Hebrews he gets very very repetitive in the latter chapters but what are we to do when God gets repetitive are we to just say well I've already heard that I know that and move on is that what God wants us to do no when you see God repeating himself in his word what you need to ask yourself is what is God saying here that I'm not getting it's 
very, very important that you do that. God doesn't repeat himself just to, just to hear his writers and his prophets and others repeat his word, just to hear himself spoken, hear his word spoken. He does it for very important reasons. God knows us. He knows we need to hear certain key things again and again so we will remember it and so that our hearts will believe it. It's what he wants here. Notice some of the reasons we're given here for why the sacrifice of the old covenant were insufficient. Number one, they could not provide access to God. We've talked about this, but this is a big one. Look at verse 1 of Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never. Would you underline that? It can never. By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. We, we have talked about this at length already, but it's important. The work of the Levitical priest, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant were insufficient because they in and of themselves were not able to say they could not make people perfect. They could not make man fit to enter into the presence of holy God. Notice he makes mention of the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. He's speaking of that great work of the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, when he entered into the most holy place, the place where God and man met and sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, the earthly throne of God. That was the highest act, the most important event in Judaism. And the author of Hebrews says it can never make perfect those who draw near. If that is important of that act, how much more so is that important of anything we conjure up that we try to do apart from the work that Christ has accomplished at Calvary? What does he say about the, the highest act of the Jewish people in the Old Testament? He said that act can never make perfect those who draw near. That's why Christ had to come and do what he did. The sacrifices of the old priest made nothing perfect. The great veil in the temple continued to hang. Great separation between God and man remained. There was never true access to God through the old way. Praise be to God that a better hope has come through Jesus. Through him, we're told, we draw near to God. We're simply told here in Hebrews 10.1 that the old system and sacrifice, they were shadows of things to come, the good to come. How many of you all are glad that we're moving into a season of the year where we don't have to mow any longer? Anybody with me rejoicing in that? Yeah, it seems like that we had to mow a lot more this year, right, Clay? Uh, all the rain and, and everything. It felt like I was out there every week. I don't like to be out there every week. I love when we move into the season where everything dies and I can stay indoors. But it especially gets difficult at the end of June, July, and, and into August. 
And uh, the way our house is set up, when I go into the backyard to go get my mower, I am immediately in the shade. I'm on the, the, the back patio and then the back deck. And there are times when I go out there and I think, well, that's not that bad out. I mean, I know the sun's bright, but it doesn't feel too hot outside. That is until I get out into the yard and I immediately feel the difference. There is such a contrast between being in the shadows and stepping out into direct sunlight in the middle of the day in the summer in East Texas, right? If you have shade at your house, you know what I'm talking about. Though you can see the brightness of the sun, being in the shadows is not the same thing. This is a good metaphor that is used for the old covenant here. The system and sacrifices of the old pointed to the brightness and the glory of the new, but the two were noticeably different. The, the old was a shadow of the good things to come. And what are the good things to come? All the privileges and blessings that flow from the accomplished work of Christ at Calvary. Through that work, through trusting in that work alone for salvation, we are forgiven of sin, we're rescued, we're restored to God. The word shadow is the Greek word skia, which means a pale prototype, a faint shadow. The old system and sacrifice was merely a silhouette. It was form without substance. That's what the Jews had without Jesus, form without substance. And some will ask again, well, if that's the case, then why did God give it to him? Why did he set it up? Well, we've, we, we've talked about this, and we've also seen this question answered in the previous passages. The old system showed man their sinfulness and need for forgiveness and restoration. Because it was a shadow, it gave people a, a picture of their sin, and it pointed them to the reality of Jesus to come. It showed them their inability, pointed them toward, showed them their need of God's Messiah to come. So, so that's the first reason we see here for why this old system and these old sacrifices were insufficient. They could not provide access to God. Here's the second reason. Number two, they could not remove sin. Talked about this as well. Very important. As we said just a moment ago, one of the positives of the old system and sacrifices is that it showed man his sinfulness and need for salvation. There was a bloody scene at the tabernacle and the temple, later at the temple. And that blood, that bloody scene was meant to remind people of the great consequence sin. Death comes as a result of sin. It reminded man of the fall and the need to be forgiven. The problem with the old system was, though it could address the problem, it could not provide a solution. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Once again, the author of Hebrews is making the point he continues to make. He's being repetitive here throughout the book. If the Old Testament priest, he says, if their work was sufficient, there would be no need for any further work, right? 
There would be no need for them to continue to offer up sacrifices again and again if it was sufficient. If the sacrifices of the Levitical priest would have really done their job, sin would have been removed forever. Those trusting in that work would no longer be burdened by the guilt of their sin. Instead, watch this, as they offered the sacrifices over and over again, not only did it not remove their sin, guess what it did? It constantly reminded them of their sin. Do you see that? They, they were reminded as those sacrifices were offered again and again, their sin debt remained. Look at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is what? A removal of sin? Nope. A reminder of sin each year. So get this. These sacrifices offered over and over again on a daily basis. And the high priest, what, what the sacrifice he made yearly, it, it simply served to remind people of the fact that their sin still needed to be dealt with. It was a reminder of the fact that their sin had not yet been removed. Let me give you a helpful illustration. If you haven't gotten it yet, maybe this will help you. Let's say you have a terrible illness, okay? And it's not going away on your own. You try everything, it's not working, you go see the doctor, he prescribes something for you, and you purchase that medicine, and you begin to take it, and you eventually get better, and you recover 100%. Every time you see that empty pill box, what's that going to remind you of? The fact that you've been healed, right? But let's say the pills don't work. Let's say you just continue to take them day after day, week after week, refill them month after month, and you continue to just be as sick as ever, what's that going to remind you of every time you see that pillbox? I'm still sick. I'm still sick. In a similar way, that's what it was like for the Jews under the old system. Every time they walked by this bloody scene again and again at the tabernacle and later at the temple, that simply reminded them we are as sick as ever. We are still sinners. Now let me say something briefly here before we move on about the phrase consciousness of sins. Consciousness of sins has to do with guilt. Guilt comes along with sin, right? When one becomes a Christian, they learn that through Jesus, through trusting in Him alone for salvation, there is no condemnation. Romans 8.1, you're going to read that this week. They come to realize that because of Jesus, their sins are forgiven. They are forever restored to God through Him. They're secure forever through the amazing grace of God and through the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus. Now, that does not mean that a believer does not think about sin anymore, is never bothered by sin or broken as a result. I would argue that there is not a more sensitive person in the world to sin than a mature believer. But the difference is that the one who is trusting in Christ alone for his salvation, though he or she is more sensitive to sin, the fear of judgment has been removed because they know Christ has paid the debt in full. He has done everything we have failed to do. We have to understand that. To be saved, right? That Christ has done this great work for us. He has removed sin. He has saved us from the wrath of God, Paul says in Romans 5, 9. And with that, the fear of judgment is 
removed. So we as believers, though we are sensitive to sin, we should be confident in the fact that our sins have been covered through the work that Christ accomplished at the cross at Calvary. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we come across a lot of warning passages written for believers, but, but oftentimes we're going to see some to come. On the heels of those warnings, God provides great assurance. He wants us to have great assurance, believers, by looking to the work that Christ accomplished. The third reason the old system and sacrifices were insufficient is because they were only external. They were external. Look at verse 4. For it, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The author of Hebrews has made this point several times already. The blood of bulls and goats, they were never meant to cut it. They could not remove sin. But that doesn't mean that that act is completely insignificant. We talked about the fact that in the Old Testament, it, it, it provided an outward purification for them to take place in ceremony. It didn't cleanse them from the inside out. So saying that does not mean that this act was completely insignificant. But watch this. This act was completely insufficient apart from Jesus. Very, very important that you understand that. Not completely insignificant, but completely insufficient apart from the work that Christ accomplished. These acts were performed by Old Testament saints in faith, looking forward to the future promises of God, looking forward to the Messiah to come. Jesus is the one who conquered sin and death for believers past, present, and future forever through his death and resurrection. John the Baptist affirmed that when he saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the true Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. said that the sacrifices of these animals, all that it did was it was like swiping a credit card. If you swipe a credit card, a hundred times, though you may experience some benefit in the present, if no one pays that bill, you got problems in the future, right? You see that? Same is true for the Old Testament saints. They had maxed out their credit card by the time Jesus got there. Jesus had not come and paid the sin debt in full. The full weight of their sin would have fallen flat on their shoulders. So these animal sacrifices were just offered up in faith, looking forward to the Messiah to come, the Christ, the Lamb of God, who would come and take away the sin of the world. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So the author of Hebrews, once again, he's taking us to the Old Testament. He does this a lot because he's showing his Jewish Christian audience that it's all about Jesus, right? He takes them to Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8 to show them that these types of sacrifices, these animal sacrifices were always insufficient. This is not a new word he's giving them. He's taking them to the old to show them that. Notice he says here, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Now I want to camp out here for a minute, remind you of a few things. 
Because though at times these sacrifices were offered in the proper way in faith, looking forward to the Messiah to come, remember many of the priests offering sacrifices, they did so in an empty way. There came a time when these sacrifices became nothing more than empty religious ritual. The priests got to the point where they were no longer offering up sacrifices in faith and obedience. They were simply going through the motions. Remember when we, we studied through the minor prophets? I know you remember it as clear as yesterday, right? When we studied through that, you remember that? We, we said that, that many of the, the priests were guilty of what is called syncretism. And what that is, is that's a blending of beliefs. That's when you take Christianity, you take another belief system, a false belief system, and you kind of put the two together, and that influences your, your beliefs and practices. The priests of old, they were guilty of doing this. They were blending true belief with false belief together, and, and it was false, the way that they were worshiping. The leaders and the priests, they would lead Jewish people in false worship. They would dabble in all sorts of ungodly beliefs and practices, and they would also ritualistically follow the requirements God had laid out for Moses as sort of a catch-all, trying to cover their bases. The Jews in the north, when the kingdom was divided, they set up alternate places for worship other than Jerusalem, which God had never authorized. They had got to the point where they were sacrificing lame and sick animals and keeping the healthier animals back for themselves. They were giving God the rest rather than giving Him their best. They had so fouled up worshiping God, God finally said in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Fellowship, what if God told us that today? Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. They were simply going through the motions of worship. God finally said, enough is enough. It got to the point where he told his people in Malachi 1.10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Toward the end of the Old Testament period, before that 400 years of silence before the coming of Christ. God was taking no pleasure in the burnt offerings that were being offered on his behalf. He was wanting someone to close the doors to their place of worship and no more offer any offerings up. He didn't want any more offerings at the hands of these godless priests. They had become complacent they were going through the motions in worship. Let me ask you this to close. Can we be that way? I believe we can. There are so many who waltz in and out of places like this Sunday after Sunday. They go through the ritual of grabbing donuts and coffee and putting a smile on their face. 
visiting with, with members of the church. They enter into places like this. They, they, they sing the songs, bow in prayer, open God's word for a sermon, maybe even take notes, put money, money in the offering box, and they leave this place Sunday after Sunday unchanged. And the reason why is because their Christian life is ritual and not relationship. Folks, listen, God has created us to worship him. But though that's the case, our rituals, our songs, our prayers, our praises do not mean a thing to him if they don't flow out of a changed, renewed heart. Worship is so much more than the outward acts of our hands and feet. It's so much more than an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It's so much more than a, than a few songs and some lip service to God during a morning service. It is a Monday through Sunday activity that, that stems and flows out of a renewed mind and a transformed heart. Listen, and I know this is sobering, but we need to hear it. You can be here Sunday after Sunday. You can have perfect attendance, sing every song, fill in every blank on your, your outline, give the church 10% of your income every month without fail, and that would not mean one thing to God if your heart is not right with Him. That matters little to Him if your heart does not belong to Him. I wonder how many in our services, both services, or like the Israelites in Amos' day, how many come in here week after week, maybe even serve, give, sing, take notes, and leave here and live the exact opposite out there week in and week out because their hearts have not been changed. I hope not many, but I know some do. Some have the mentality, well, I know I'm not living the way God's called me to live, but at least I'm here every Sunday. Surely God will be happy with that. Though, though I'm not living life the way God calls me to live it, I'm living for myself most of the week. At least I'm giving him one day out of my week. It's not as much as some, but it's more than others. Surely God will be okay with that. You know how God feels about that? Reread Amos 5, 21 through 23. He hates it. He hates it. God does not want empty religious practices. He wants you. He wants your heart. He is jealous for me. He's jealous for you. He wants all of you or nothing at all. Not my words, God's words. Does he have all of you? Does he have you at all? Does your heart belong to him? Has your heart been changed by him? Have you turned from your sin? Have you given your life up and over to him? Is Christ your great high priest? Are you trusting in his great work alone for your salvation have you made christ lord or 
are you trusting an empty religious ritual to save? Scripture says it's no good. It's no good. It's empty, insufficient, and ungodly. You have to place your faith and trust in the sufficiency of Christ's saving work, in His person and work. You have to turn from your sin, forsake your sin, make Christ Lord of your life. If you've not done that, I pray you would today. No better time than right now. No more certain time than right now. If you're here, you have not turned from your sin, bow the knee to King Jesus, do it today and be saved. Let me pray for us.